You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported. Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting remotely for WFHB, this is Benedict Jones. And I'm Sydney Foreman. This is the WFHB Local News for Monday, July 13, 2020. Later in the program, you will hear from Mayor John Hamilton in our recurring Monday segment, A Few Minutes with the Mayor. Also coming up in the next half hour, Artbeat, a weekly program interviewing artists, activists, and educators about their work. But first, your local headlines. Up first, WFHB correspondent Aaron Comforty delivers your latest headlines in today's local news brief. We turn to Aaron Comforty for more. 560 new cases of COVID-19 were reported in Indiana on Sunday, according to the Indiana State Department of Health, which also confirmed two new deaths in the state. Monroe County reported eight new positive cases on Sunday, while today, Brown County reported one new positive case of COVID-19. Wait times for test results in Indiana may take four to six days, according to Logistics Health Incorporated, the company that schedules the free health department test. Two doctors speaking off the record to WFHB through the IU Health Virtual Visits application raised questions about the reliability of the COVID-19 tests. One called the tests low quality and not standardized. The other, an ICU doctor, said that he cared for patients who tested negative for the virus multiple times in a short period before receiving a positive result on the third or fourth test. They both recommended that if a person suspects that they have COVID-19, even if they receive a negative test result, they should quarantine for two weeks. National media attention continues to focus on the 4th of July racist attack on Vox Booker at Lake Monroe. This morning, Mr. Booker appeared on Democracy Now! By visiting our website, wfhb.org, you can hear another interview Booker gave with WFHB's Bring It On. The People's Market A new farmer's market in Bloomington, with a focus on equity and racial justice, has opened an outdoor, socially distanced market in the old Kmart parking lot near Blooming Foods East. The People's Market is open from 8 a.m. to 1 p.m. on Saturdays. You can find more information on the People's Market by visiting their website, peoplesmarketbtown.org. In March of 2020, Bloomington withdrew their court appeal to acquire Juan Carrasquel's 222 South Walnut property, where his realty business is stationed, for the reconstruction of the 4th Street Garage. The garage closed on January 1st of 2019 due to structural instability. Back on May 8th of 2019, the city staff and property owner discussed terms for purchasing the property from Carrasquel for $587,500. Carousel rejected the offer, proposing a value of $1.5 million instead. During the summer of 2019, the city filed a petition in the Monroe County Circuit Court to acquire the property through eminent domain. 
However, the judge denied the petition, stating that the garage plan included commercial use and therefore would not be used completely for public purposes. The judge filed a final order on July 9, 2020, in which it states the city has 30 days to pay $62,500 in legal fees for Carousel. According to a B-Square Beacon article, quote, the city has paid its outside counsel on the case, Bose, McKinney, and Evans, a total of $39,367.50 since the litigation started, end quote. This totals the city to over $101,000 in legal fees for the case. The replacement 4th Street garage footprint is now being modified to fit its original property size. Once construction is fully underway, it is approximated to be complete in about one year. The garage has been closed for over a year and a half. Indiana Family and Social Services Administration offices have been closed since March due to COVID-19. Now, state FSSA offices in the state will reopen, according to a report in the Associated Press. The Indiana Family and Social Services Administration reopened Division of Family Resources offices in all 92 counties in Indiana for in-person service. Department of Family Resources staff are required to wear face mask coverings and take other protective measures for themselves and the public. It is encouraged for all visitors to wear masks while inside or around others. Face coverings will be required wherever local mandates are in place. Marnie Lemons, spokesperson for FSSA, said at-risk people should still use online services. She urged that only people with immediate circumstances should use the in-person services. Lemons encouraged clients to wear masks when they arrive at FSSA offices. Well, we closed the Division of Family Resources offices, um, and there's at least one in all 92 counties of Indiana, but we closed them back in March for to, to make sure that our employees and members of the public were safe um, from and, and were able to appropriately social distance. It was just hard to make sure that we could continue to do that. So when the rest of the state shut down, we closed those offices. We have now reopened them, but we are still strongly encouraging people to wear masks, and there will be guidance as to how to follow social, media, uh, social distancing practices for people while they are there. In a press release, Indiana FSSA said it has been processing an increased amount of applications for food and cash assistance and health coverage virtually. The organization said it encourages Indiana residents to apply for these benefits or check the status of their application or case either online at www.fssabenefits.in.gov or over the phone by calling 1-800-403-0846. FSSA advised clients to be patient if there are long wait lines. Due to social distancing requirements and capacity limits, clients may be required to wait outside. Each office has a drop box where any paperwork or documents can be left by applicants or clients without requiring them to enter the building. The organization's Division of Disability and Rehabilitative Services will reopen to in-person clients at respective offices. However, services will be available remotely. DFR offices are open from 8 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. 
Indiana Attorney General Curtis Hill lost the Republican nomination for re-election. This comes after his law license was suspended for a month over allegations that he groped four women, including a state lawmaker at an Indianapolis bar. Todd Rokita, a former U.S. representative, beat Holcomb in mail-in voting by state convention delegates, according to a report by the Associated Press. Rokita defeated Hill with 52% of the vote in a third round of voting, said Chairman Kyle Hupfer. Hill received 48% of the delegate vote. This means that Rokita advanced from the Republican convention last week and will be on the ballot during the general election on November 3rd. Rokita ran for governor and lost in 2016. In 2018, he ran an unsuccessful campaign for the U.S. Senate. He was the Secretary of State for Indiana from 2002 to 2010. Rokita will be running against Jonathan Weinzepfel, who was the former mayor of Evansville. According to the Associated Press, Weinzepfel said his governing philosophies, priorities, and values, quote, couldn't be more different, unquote, from Rokita. He emphasized that his views on the Affordable Cares Act sets him and his opponents apart. On Friday, protesters moved from the Monroe County Courthouse Square to People's Park, where residents urged justice for the racist attack against Vox Booker. Protesters also discussed what an anti-racist Bloomington would look like. There was not one specific group who hosted the demonstration, but rather a collective of activists who organized the People's Park protests. Vox Booker and his attorney, Catherine Lyle, opened the event with a press conference. Then, protesters were invited to speak on a megaphone about ideas they had to create an anti-racist community. Some demonstrators called for the defunding of Bloomington Police Department, a halt on hiring more sheriff's deputies, and to stop detaining Monroe County residents who are wanted by Immigration and Customs Enforcement. Justin Freeman, an event organizer and director of equity and inclusion at the Kelly School of Business Student Government, thanked protesters for showing up. However, he said demonstrators need to actively challenge racism rather than simply making a social media post. He said people need to transfer their energy into action. Thank you guys so much for uh, coming here. Like I said, initially was to show support for Vox press conference uh, detailing the horrific uh, actions that took place and events that took place on July 4th, and it kind of spiraled into this amazing thing with people being able to share their different opinions and perspectives and knowledge with us uh, right here at the People's Park. It was a, it's amazing. Glad to have everyone here. We've all been so busy at the protests and the rallies and different events, and I think it's important that we start channeling that Action. Ziggy Walker, a student at IU, took the megaphone to talk about renaming buildings after David Starr Jordan, a known racist and eugenicist. Walker also talked about sexual assault, police reform, and implicit biases. Named for Jordan Hall, named after past IU president, was a eugenicist. She was one of the scientists who inspired the Nazis. The state of Was 
Now it's time for a few minutes with the mayor. In today's interview with Mayor John Hamilton, we talk about the Bloomington police, systemic racism, COVID-19, and more. Community members posted questions on our social media via Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, posing questions to Bloomington Mayor John Hamilton about current issues. Today on A Few Minutes with the Mayor, John Hamilton answers these questions. The first question today comes from user nyoung91, and they're asking, how do you plan to move forward with defunding the broken policing system and investing in education and health care? I really do appreciate and agree with the notion that policing is a, a back-end response and that we need to invest more and more in the front-end responses to our community, whether it's education and health care and mental health and housing and substance use disorder, and you can go on and on about the importance of investing in that. Uh, I will also just note that the, both the state and the national levels, uh, in my view, are significantly underinvesting in those in those areas and we depend a lot on that kind of state and federal support for those basic improvements in our community um you know the policing reform is something i've been involved with since i've been mayor and um, been doing a lot of that already adding a social worker adding non-badge non-armed uh, neighborhood resource specialists um, getting uh CALEA accreditation the national accreditation and reviewing all the Eight can't wait and and campaign zero standards, almost all of which we have already been embracing. But that's a good discussion to keep going. And I, I totally agree with the sentiment that says we should be investing more in prevention and social strength uh, rather than just responding to problems when they arise. And from the same user, they're asking, have you spoken with or made plans to speak with local social justice advocates and healthcare professionals to develop new or alternative task forces in place of local police? Uh, I speak with people all the time and happy to speak with uh, anyone in particular. Um, we're going to be talking with city council directly uh, on the budget. And while it is true these days, the uh, meetings are a little less common to have to have meetings happening. I'm active member of the NAACP and we have a community coordinating council, which brings together some of the uh, social service agencies. We've created a social service task force that's looking at uh, the impact on all of our safety net from the COVID crisis and many other things and happy to get input. I continue to do my weekly sessions where I let any resident come in and talk and share their views and ideas. I welcome as much input as we can get. And those weekly sessions that you mentioned, is that just with members of the community and how could someone set something like that up? They can just call my office. Yes, I have a weekly hour I set aside to do short meetings with anybody who wants to come in as a resident and talk about any subject they want to talk about. So just contact my office for that. The next question is from Sarah Cat Ann. And why have you not been working with black organizations like BLM, Bloomington, and Enough is Enough? And do you have plans to do so going forward? 
I do work with uh, black organizations like Black Lives Matter, uh, NAACP, Commission on the Status of Black Males, and others, uh, and absolutely will continue to work on them. I've had meetings with all of those organizations, members of some of those organizations, and we'll continue to work with them. They're great pillars of our community. And she's asking, will you require Bloomington Police Department to sell the Bearcat or the armed vehicle? Well, I know there are many people who've been asking about the armored vehicle. It's an armored vehicle to protect those inside. That vehicle is reviewed. Any use of it and policies are reviewed in the Citizen Public Safety Board. And it's been used five times in each of those deployments, if you will. It was used in a potentially dangerous situation to try to make sure we didn't have violence erupt. And I'm glad to say in each of those five cases, it it did successfully accomplish the, the mission, the rescue without violence. Um, I'm absolutely open to considering talking about how that vehicle is and should be used as I think about that. One, we probably have about 150,000 privately owned firearms in our county if we're anywhere near the national average. And those firearms can be very dangerous to any of us uh, and to the police uh, law enforcement personnel as well. Uh, And the second thing is, in the case of an active shooter or a very dangerous situation, if we need a vehicle that lets law enforcement get close to a situation, either to rescue a person or to um, respond to a situation, if we don't have that vehicle, then we will have to ask another community to send us their vehicle, which means they would come with their team and not be under our direct police control and supervision. And I'm I, frankly, I would be concerned about asking a, a Lawrence County or a Morgan County tactical team to respond to an active shooter situation or a hostage situation. But I think the discussion should continue and happy to keep hearing viewpoints about it. The next question comes from user Throb Goblin. They ask, what are you planning on doing about the various white supremacists in the town threatening and attacking members of our community? It is a very frustrating, angering, disturbing activity when we see hate groups, white supremacy groups uh, active in our region, in our community. We uh, actively uh, seek to make clear, and I do personally, that those doctrines are uh, abhorrent and not welcome. We continue to be very vigorous in our reporting of any bias incidents or hate crimes. And I think it takes our community to continue to respond, to say these ideologies, these racist beliefs are not welcome here. Uh, And uh, there's a lot of hard work to get rid of that. And uh, eliminating it is not a, a simple turn of a page or snap of a finger. It takes really hard, long community work. And this question from Sarah Catan says... How will you ensure that Bloomington is taking active steps to dismantle the systemic racism within it instead of calling it a liberal oasis and condemning other communities without working on our own? Bloomington is a progressive community, but we are not a perfect community for sure. We have a lot of work to do to continue to address systemic racism. What do you think about our education system, our criminal justice system, our law enforcement system, our housing system, our jobs and economic system. 
been real important for me to, for example, work a lot on the housing structures that we have in our community to help make sure we eliminate the legacies of racial discrimination that have been so present in our community and make sure we're addressing racial disparities and challenges in the school system and the law enforcement area. You know, that's part of my job every day uh, and our whole community to all of us working on that. And from Kay Renee asks, what do you have to say to the black communities who don't feel safe, especially going to rural areas or lakes right now? It breaks my heart that any individuals uh, don't feel safe uh, in our community. And of course, people of color, the black community in particular, given what happened over the July 4th weekend, I certainly understand the feelings. I try to understand them. I, of course, can't completely, but, you know, it breaks my heart that this happens in our community. Any violence is terrible. Racist violence and hate crimes are particularly odious. And I'm just asking that all of us do all we can together to help continue to make progress to eliminate the racism that still persists. In what ways can the community take actions to create an actively anti-racist community? That's a big question. Let me say also, if anyone is concerned or has information about a racist act or a bias incident, please do report that to the city uh, or anywhere else. But we have a confidential line and a process through the Human Rights Commission to please encourage people to report that. Look, eliminating racism begins... (laughs) with our young people and education. It includes reviewing institutional biases that we may have in in our jobs and includes, from my perspective, political action to ensure uh, leadership that talks about these issues, that cares about these issues, as opposed to leadership that tries to divide us and stir up racial animosity and even white supremacy. It means getting engaged uh, at the local, state, and national level and in leadership and politics. The user, Kay Renee, is asking also, how can we support um, the Black communities in government, in the workplace, and in local spaces? Well, thank you for asking about that. I mean, I I don't know if the questioner is is white. Uh, I'm a white male, and one of the most important things I can do is to listen, to hear voices uh, asking for change and working together to think about how do we get change done. So maybe the, the first thing I would suggest is to listen Uh, The second thing is to get involved in whether it's a local commission uh, and step in and get involved in pushing for change. And that can be through legislative action, administrative action. It can be through a community uh, organizations. But listening and stepping up and getting involved are two things I would encourage. User NYoung91 again, and they're asking, are there plans to make masks or face coverings mandatory in public? I do expect that we will have an order coming to make face coverings mandatory in our county. Uh, I've made clear that from the city, uh, particularly with students coming back and seeing what's been happening around the country, I've been an advocate for mandatory face coverings, uh, and I'm looking forward to that order. And the Chocolate Priestess is saying that many businesses in Bloomington claim to be practicing mask wearing and social distancing, but when they go inside for even just a pickup order, that this is not true. So they're asking if there's mandate put on wearing masks in public, how will this be enforced? A mandatory order uh, is typically enforced by private enterprises, whether it's a restaurant or a shop or a any facility like that, we expect them to assure compliance with the order, and I think most of them will. And uh, I think enforcement can come to help make sure they do that, uh, and then uh, enforcement can come from various uh, governmental entities. 
And the chocolate priestess also suggests perhaps you could hire some folks who have lost their jobs to visit businesses and report their actual practices. At the very least, generate a list we people can consult when deciding where, who to buy goods or services from. And would this be a plausible thing? Actually, yes, we are looking. I know the county is and the city, too, looking at indeed uh, bringing on some resources, meaning people who can help assure compliance with these orders. So... I think those are good suggestions, and they're ones that are being looked at right now. Wonderful. The last question is from Sarah Cat Ann again, and they're asking, if Indiana as a whole refuses to step back to earlier stages, will Monroe County follow that lead despite spiking cases or commit to taking a safer path than the state as a whole? Well, thank you for asking, and absolutely our local officials, myself included, have not hesitated to take our own path if we think the state is taking a path that's not right for us. Uh, That will continue to be the case. Uh, We are monitoring our own situation. We have an unusual situation here where thousands and thousands of uh, arrivals will be here from all around the country, which means we need to pay particular attention to potential super spreader events and to to masking. So I will assure you that I know from my seat and I believe very much from my uh, colleagues in county government, health department and others that we are not at all hesitant to take the steps that we think are right for our community, even if the state is moving in a different direction. Do you have a question for Mayor John Hamilton? Comment that question on this coming week's post for a few minutes with the mayor to have your question answered. For WFHB, I'm Sydney Foreman. Now it's time for Artbeat, a weekly program where Dr. Phyllis Chichek interviews artists, activists, and educators about their work. We turn to Phyllis Chichek for more. Welcome to Artbeat with Dr. Phyllis Chichek at WFHB. Today, my guest is Selena Carter a dance professor at Indiana University. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I introduced you as the dance professor, but um, could you tell us what is it that exactly you do? I had a career as a choreographer and performer, especially in dance improvisation. Before my academic career, I was actively in a community of artists working to produce dance performance. And it was very much dance performance in a very postmodern genre, fringy and experimental. (laughs) And then um, the practice of especially contemporary or modern dance is is one of rebellion. (laughs) What is your theme? And what, what are you embracing and what are you rejecting mm-hmm. That's a great question. I think in my career, say in the last 20 years, I was really embracing the idea of emergence, sort of emergent systems. So what I'm passionate about in my creative work is, is instead of telling dancers what to do specifically with their bodies, I love creating structures or systems where it, it has elements of improvisation and personal choice. So every performance in, can be different. And the dancers have agency in the moment to make choice, expressive choices and structural choices, which, which create the work, which will always be different. Even though it has some qualities or some elements that might be the same, it can be a completely different dance from evening to evening. And then the second part of your question, I, I love how you phrased it, but I think for me um, personally, what I'm looking at now is how my own practices and lineage in dance have been 
white dominant. I've been working to be an anti-racist teacher really actively since 2016. And so right now in this historic moment of our, our, our reckoning and our pandemic racism as a country, I'm as inspired by the range of skills and abilities and creativity and imagination and structural problem solving that anti-racism brings as much as dance or the arts. So I'm really focusing on how I can be more anti-racist in my own work, in my teaching, and how some of the lineages of my practice of postmodern dance have been rooted in white supremacy. Uh, it's interesting because dance is very physical. Absolutely. And racism is also very body-oriented. Yes, yes. I imagine that uh, since there's a lot of trauma and pain and history is stored in the bodies, dance could be a really great outlet. Absolutely. And I think the more that I, I confront racism in you know my dance tradition, I discover how interwoven the history of construction of race and racism is in the form and how much Black artists and Black dancers have contributed and developed the form but been invisibilized. Uh, and certainly I think that you know at the embodied level, we hold the specious construct of race in our very selves. And there's a lot of ways that that we, we posture our bodies or we move through space that do embody systems of oppression and also are the key to liberation. So thinking about um, resistance and joy in liberation of movement and, and creative expression. And I think, you know, at, at, as I'm thinking about it at, at base, dance is, is movement and movement is freedom. Thank you for coming onto the show and sharing your thoughts. And I will look for your future events. Work that I create and that my colleagues create will be featured this coming academic year at Indian University Department of Theater, Drama and Contemporary Dance. And they may be hybrid. They may be a little bit in person, a little bit in person and a little bit live. Okay, thanks so much, Celine. Bye. You have been listening to Artbeat with Dr. Phyllis Chichak on WFHP. Artbeat is produced in partnership with the Arts Alliance of Greater Bloomington. Tune in on Tuesdays on WFHP after 7.15 in the morning and again during the daily local news at 5 p.m. Or you can listen online at wfhp.org. You've been listening to the WFHB Local News. Today's headlines were written by Aaron Comforty, Cade Young, and Sydney Foreman in partnership with CATS, Community Access Television Services. Our feature was produced by Sydney Foreman. Artbeat is produced by Dr. Felice Chichak. Our theme music is provided by Mark Bingham and the Social Climbers. Our executive producer is Cade Young. For WFHB, I'm Sydney Foreman. And I'm Benedict Jones. Thanks for supporting Indiana's only volunteer-powered, listener-supported, independent local news program. You can hear tonight's full broadcast as well as all other WFHB news programming online at wfhb.org. You too can be a part of our award-winning news team. For more information about joining our volunteer team of citizen journalists, email news at wfhb.org. Stay tuned for With Good Reason, 
coming up next. Also, stay tuned for Bring It On at 6 p.m. to hear an interview with Vox Booker, Mayor John Hamilton, and Indiana Democratic nominee for State Senate Shelley Yoder on WFHB Community Radio.